0: Welcome to the Seahawks Forever Podcast. Hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist, Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Turn off the mute button, Dan. Get this thing started right. just occurred to me as I was listening to the intro that... uh, when when it refers to me as long time that means old right (laughs) means i'm old means i've been through a lot of these drafts uh i will say this still coming down off the whole process from last week and i have to say this was the most fun i've ever had uh anticipating a draft studying for a draft um trying to understand what they did in the draft and i I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit yesterday when uh, Bill and Keith from the Seahawks Playbook podcast joined me. By the way, thanks again to those guys and for all the great feedback you guys have given us uh, about the episode. But we talked about how each and every year uh, you feel like you'll learn a little bit more about the Seahawks process and it'll prepare us better for next year. As we look ahead to just kind of what appears to be a normal draft process for them next year, the Russell Wilson trade is done. Um, They do have the extra third next year, but otherwise all their native picks. This is, this is when it gets fun. You know, we were caught in that cycle for a while and it started with the Percy Harvin trade, the Jimmy Graham trade, trading out of first rounds on a number of occasions. And then obviously culminated with the trade for Jamal Adams, where we just got used to a drafting low and B not having a lot of draft picks and having to watch Schneider kind of work his magic, trade down, accumulate picks. Um, This is a lot more fun because we get access to prospects that uh, weren't under consideration before. Um, Even as now we're starting to see um, mock drafts for 2024 come out and big boards come out for 2024. And I'm already trying to familiarize myself with some of the names that I didn't know already of some of the top 50, top 100 guys. So I know who to focus on. Well, now it doesn't really matter how the Seahawks perform next year. The entire array of available prospects is kind of open for us to dream on, right? I mean, not Caleb Williams and some of those guys that are already being talked about as top three picks, but, you know, someone I was having a conversation yesterday with somebody about Brock Bowers, the the tight end out of Georgia, who's going to be uh, likely a top 10 pick when he comes out. He's finally eligible this year. Um. And okay, let's say that's where he's at. And the Seahawks really want a dynamic tight end. They have they have the wherewithal now to be able to move up. So it just kind of opens things up. And and now we've seen two drafts in in a row where the Seahawks had a top 10 pick. Multiple day two picks. And and this new draft process that John has spoken so openly about, we start to get an idea of of who their guys are. Uh, I think this year more than ever um we really saw some of the character things that they look for and uh, some of the athletic qualities and um, motor and things like that and I tried to take some of that in, into account when I did my shadow draft so first of all welcome back to Seahawks forever I am Dan Vienz. appreciate you listening hit subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, please help support the channel that way. Uh, you'll get notification of new episodes and follow me on Twitter at Seahawks forever. And also subscribe on whatever, uh, audio podcast app you prefer. And if you really like what we do, lots of nice comments on the YouTube page. Um, but if the app you use to listen on podcasts, if you listen on Apple, uh, leave a review, uh, that would really help out the show as well. Um, the shadow draft, that's what, that's what we're going to get to today. We've got some news to talk about first, but what the shadow draft is, and I mentioned it on the show yesterday, this is something Keith Myers taught me when he and I were working together for 12th Man Rising. Um, it's, the idea is when the Seahawks are on the clock, you write down who you would like them to take. And with each pick, you have to, Uh, you have to adapt because, you know, if, if, if you're sitting there at a certain draft spot, they're on the clock, there's a corner there that you like, but the Seahawks in actuality just took a corner. You have to ignore that. What did you do and what are your plans so that you can put together a comprehensive draft? See what I mean? So if at 20, I liked Joey Porter jr. I'm still going to take Joey Porter Jr. If I didn't take Witherspoon at five, if he's the highest guy on my on board, because if I did something different at five, right? So that's kind of the fun of it. Uh, there were a couple of times on day three, especially when I was trying to get that last reaction show in. And I, I had to, I had to get out of here before the end of the seventh round, or uh, I had a moment they were on the clock uh, in the sixth round and I almost forgot to make a pick. Um, So there is a little bit of stress involved, but I'm going to unveil that today. I'm going to show you side by side with what the Seahawks did at each pick and then where the players I ended up taking ended up going. Did I get any of them exactly the same as the Seahawks? Was I way off in some of my assessments? Were players taken right after that? And then what does the overall draft class look like in comparison to what the Seahawks did? Uh, But before we get to that, there is uh, some news today. And the 12s, Seahawks faithful, are a little bummed today. Uh, Puna Ford signed a one-year deal with the Buffalo Bills. Reportedly, according to Tom Pellisaro of NFL Network, took less money to sign in Buffalo uh, than he had offers elsewhere because he saw an opportunity there um, to potentially win a Super Bowl. Uh, Buffalo's interest in Puna was no surprise. They had him in for a visit. Um, had an offer out to him before the draft that he declined and uh, they upped that offer a little bit today or yesterday um, in part because now that we're beyond May 1st, any signings uh, doesn't affect their compensatory pick formula for next year. Um, And they've got a high pick coming to them um, uh, because they lost uh, Tremaine Edmonds. Right. Right. Um, and so the, the interest was there, all four of their key interior defensive linemen, including guys like Ed Oliver are on expiring contracts. And so they just wanted to, to sort of get the guy into the program and, and he fits a need and, uh, reading about the fit there, he's going to play one tech. He's going to play true nose tackle. He's not going to play out of position like he did here last year. And and that's something we talked about at length yesterday, Keith and Bill and I, and, and Pete Carroll was very transparent about his desire to bring Puna back and actually Um, after the draft even used the word need, we need him back. We may never know what their offer was to him. They may have been counting on the fact that he might've taken less to return. Um, But the issue, as much as we might like some of the guys that they drafted and signed in Draymond Jones and Jaron Reed, very, very thin up front still. And as we discussed yesterday, not just thin up front, the bodies are there and there's upside with Cameron Young and Mike Morris But to count on rookies, especially to count on rookies that obviously haven't fully developed yet and are going to need some time and some coaching and some development. You know, Cameron Young, Mike Morris might end up being foundational defensive line pieces on this roster, but probably aren't going to see the best of them until year two or three. I think a good example of that would be Boye Mafe. We saw flashes last year. He wasn't ready for a full-time role and still had some, some things he needs to work on in his game on the edge. So what do we do now? Because look, the bottom line is this. And I was just chatting with Michael Thompson before I went on the air about uh, the analogy that came to mind for me is this. We may like the group that they have. And right now, literally on their roster, this is what the Seahawks have. Draymond Jones, we're excited about him, right? But it all seems to kind of be on his shoulders at this point. Jaron Reed, mixed bag, his tape in Green Bay last year, not good. Is he going to be closer to the player that they had when he was in Seattle the first time or the solid performance that he put together when he went to Kansas City? Then there's Miles Adams, the undrafted free agent going into his third year, kind of undersized guy. Flashed last year on the active roster, but he's an unknown. And then the two rookies, Cameron Young, Mike Morris. That's it. Brian Monet is going to start the season on the pup. He, he may not be counted on at all this year. That that knee injury wasn't just a clean ACL it sounds like it was more than that. They signed Robert Cooper in undrafted free agency, uh, traditionally built nose tackle out of Florida State, 6'2", 3, They've had luck with those guys in undrafted free agency. Uh, but what do they do? You have to add, I think, as we were discussing yesterday, two veterans to that group. Uh, And they're not going to be guys that are sure things. Guys on veteran minimum deals. Guys that want to be part of the culture and part of the program here, but they can help in a rotational role and ease some of the burden on those rookies. Uh, We always look to the guys that we recently let go. And so the the attention is going to shift now to Al Woods and Shelby Harris. Uh, Woods is, I think, 34 now, 35. Uh, Had interest from the Cleveland Browns but then they went out and drafted Siaki Aika, very similar player. Um, I tend to think that Woods is kind of in that Austin Blythe sort of middle ground right now where he's thinking about retirement and maybe his choice is retirement or back to the Seahawks. And maybe that's one of those things because he's a veteran that he doesn't sign before training camp and the Seahawks go to camp and kind of see what they have. Is he willing to take a vet minimum deal Are the Seahawks willing to, get creative like they did coming out of the COVID year, maybe do a void year deal. Uh, So he has a low cap hit for this year and they can move on easily after next year. And then there's Shelby Harris. Uh, Had had some injury issues last year when he came over from Denver, but really versatile, played well at times. Uh, Great locker room voice, leader, real positive influence in the locker room. To me, if you're only going to choose one of those guys, I know Woods is a true nose tackle and we think we're lacking that. I like Harris's versatility because he can play pretty much all the way up and down that 3-4 that line. Um, move around, gives you a little pass rush juice to go along with Dremont Jones. They obviously have history together in Denver. How much money is he willing to sign for? Are there other guys? Looking at the free agent list, Puna was the best of the guys that were out there. Um, Akeem Hicks, 34 years old last year. Uh, these are just the guys, veteran, defensive, interior defensive linemen, they're free agents currently, that played at least 30% of their snaps with their team last year. Akeem Hicks. Run stuffer, but over the last five, six years, has missed multiple games each year. Guys like Chris Wormley, Matt Ioannidis, uh, sort of rotational guys, a little bit more pass rush upside from those guys than true nose tackles. They're both around that, that they're both kind of 6'4", 6'5", 300 and, and Sue, a lot of people bring him up. He's 36 now. What does he have left in the tank? Might he be a guy that if they get into camp and they need to add a veteran, you know, he's talked about his desire maybe at some point in his career to finish up here in the Northwest. Of course, went to school in Oregon. Mario Edwards is a guy the Seahawks brought in for a visit before the draft. They visited with him last year and didn't sign him. He's a solid veteran that's more of an end type. Would be a solid hedge against... Morris having to play too much as a rookie. Um, I think he has some of that versatility where he can reduce inside too. And he's a guy that would probably only cost you the veteran minimum. Are there a couple of guys that are more defensive end types that can reduce in inside on occasion? Jadevian Clowney, perhaps. Do they want to go down that road again? I don't know. A lot of you got excited about Frank Clark. I talked about on the show when he made the comment on Tyler Lockett's Instagram page that he might need to look into a property that he had for sale in Seattle. Um, But he's not that type in this scheme. He's an outside linebacker and I don't know that he really fits now. And I also think someone's going to pay Frank Clark. He'll get he'll get more money than the Seahawks are willing or able to pay. So this is where it gets a little scary And the analogy that I made. Um, was a starting rotation in baseball. And in particular, let's look at the Mariners. Coming into the season, we, most of us, felt pretty good about the Mariners' prospects this year, even though we might've had question marks about whether they improved the lineup enough because we thought that starting rotation was going to be so good. And in fact, we had six guys, right? Because Marco Gonzalez was so good in the spring, he beat out Chris Flexen. Flexen starts out in the bullpen. Then what happens? Couple of guys underperform. Flexen gets shelled. He he had to be in there because Robbie Ray gets hurt. His first time out. Gonzalez has had a couple of rough outings. Kirby and Gilbert have had some moments of showing their youth and inexperience. They bring a guy up like Easton McGee. throw seven shutout or seven no-hit innings against Blue Jays. You think, oh, okay, we do have some depth and then. He gets hurt. So while you can talk yourself into those five guys being good enough, you like the upside in Young and Morris, you like the experience of Reed and Jones, you like the the potential star power of Jones, and Miles Adams gives you some juice, that can't be it. They have to go to camp with seven or eight guys. Because what if Jones gets hurt? What if any one of those guys gets hurt? What if you have one of those years where that position group gets dinged up? And I'm not talking about ACLs and Achilles, but you, know, you miss two, three, four games here. So they have to do something. They've talked openly about it too. They have. It's not like they're going to go. They won't go into camp with these five. Schneider talked about it on his last uh, radio show before the draft last week that, you know, the phases of free agency and talk specifically about June 1 cap cuts, how new players and new names will become available. And they have to be ready to react to that. They have to be ready to move on that. Are there guys you get closer to training camp that maybe you can trade a late future draft pick for? Um, Where do they sit financially today? Can they do it? What can they do? Currently, according to the NFL Players Association, the Seahawks have 7.08 million in cap space. It's a little bit different than what over the cap shows. Over the cap shows uh, 6.2, 6.3, but it's in the ballpark. And then over the cap estimates their effective cap space as that they're about three and a half million in the red. And so you do the math. That means they need nine to $10 million to sign the draft picks that they just drafted based on what their slotted cap hits are going to be. Um, and by the way, uh side note, there was a, there was a story last week that was very well done by Michael Sean Dugger of the athletic about how, John Schneider has talked more openly this year about cash and cap, and how they're they're kind of tight on their cash and cap, and they have to manage that well. It, it led some cynical types to say, "Are they strapped? Is Jody Allen being cheap?" No, just the Seahawks do things a certain way. They're owned by a foundation. Remember that, not a rich individual. They're owned by a foundation. She is bound by certain parameters one of which may be that she may be required to sell the team at some point. But they have to work on a budget. And that's a cash budget too, which likely rules out things like the easiest way to create cap space would be to take part of Quandre Diggs $13.5 million salary this year, convert it to a signing bonus, spread it out over the rest of his deal. Boom, you pick up 7 or $8 million in cap space. But to do that, you have to write a check for 7 or $8 million. Uh, and that doesn't sound like something they want to do. So how do you clear that space? How do you come up with that three to 4 million just to sign the draft picks, let alone be able to go out and sign some veterans uh, pretty easily, actually. And I think these are all moves at the Seahawks um, that kind of range from absolutely definitely want to make it happen to I could see it being something that they'd be interested in. Uh, some things that I don't think will be under consideration they're not going to redo DK Metcalf's deal already. It's too new. I don't even know they would redo Tyler's deal. You could add a year or two to that. I think at his advancing age, you want to kind of see how that plays out. Um, the biggest one is Uchenen Nwosu uh, In the last year of his two-year deal, he's a foundational piece, one of the best free agent signings the Seahawks have ever made. And a guy that's in the prime of his career, young, and you want to sign that guy long-term. Um, Pete has said it. And I think it's something typically we're going to need to be patient. The Seahawks typically do big extensions right before camp opens or sometimes even maybe the first week of camp. Nuosu's cap hit this year is about $13 million, a little over $13 million. So you do say a three-year extension with him. You can easily drop that cap hit for this year quite a bit six, seven, eight million, you can clear right there. Question is always, takes two to tango. Does Nuosu want to be here? Sure seems like it. Sure seems like he found a place where he fits and that believes in him and gets the most out of his ability. Um, If they can make that happen right there alone, you clear a pretty significant amount of cap space. You can make some things happen. But Here's a couple other uh, to consider, especially because the Seahawks ignored tight end in this draft. A draft that we talked over and over about was a very strong tight end draft. And that they might dip into that at some point. Because uh, contractually, Will Disley is the only guy signed beyond this year. Colby Parkinson and Noah Fanner are in the last year of their deals. There were some rumors they may have been open to trading Fant. He counts about $6.5 million guaranteed right now uh, on his fifth-year option. Uh, that obviously didn't happen. It's not going to happen now. But what if you could extend him? You know, they like him. They, they almost drafted him the year he came out. They, he fits the offense. I think they just kind of started scratching the surface. It seemed like he and Gino really built some chemistry late in the year. You could drop that $6.5 million down quite a bit, too, by signing him to an extension. How does he view his value? Does he think a big year can put him up in that upper echelon, some of those tight ends that are really getting paid? I don't know. And then what about Disley? He's got a couple years left on his deal. He's had some injury issues, though. He's a $9 million cap hit. I don't know if you can do much there. Unless the player is highly motivated to do something. Maybe you tack another year on just to give him a little security. I don't know, but there's an opportunity there. Other than that, that that's about it. There aren't many other things that you can do. Um, Other than some nickel and diming, like you could, you know, someone suggested to me that they could cut Mike Jackson uh, if, if he's not going to beat out Devin Witherspoon and, and Trey Brown at left corner. And, and I didn't look it up, but I don't think you're going to save much more than, I don't know, a million dollars there these are the ways the Noosu extension would be the big one um and again the Seahawks don't have to do anything today if they're confident they can get that move done and they feel like they need to strike now to get a player they want to add to that defensive line rotation if Shelby Harris comes to him tomorrow and says hey look I'll do a deal that gives me a two million dollar cap hit this year but I need I need to sign it now otherwise I'm going to look around or take this other offer. Um, and they feel like they need to do that. They can't because they have that 7 million in space right now. You don't have to sign your rookies in, in advance of mini camp. You don't have to sign them until training camp. So they have some time, but they better be damn sure that they can get some of these other things done. Um, other news as expected, Jordan Brooks, fifth year option was declined by the team would have guaranteed him 12.7 million next year. There's no way they were going to pick up that fifth year option with him coming off an ACL, but again, I think he's another one of those guys. He is everything that Seahawks look for in character wise, how he's wired. Uh, the linebacker market, uh, isn't, uh, it is pretty affordable. We saw this off season, you know, the top, top guys, the big name guys got some money. Um, but you know, Brooks isn't going to ascend to that level, especially coming off an injury. Um, so I think the odds are pretty good that you, um, you know, if he comes back from the injury and he looks good and he plays good um, that they could probably still keep him in the program because linebacker, you know, beyond next year, we're going to talk about this a little bit in this this shadow draft coming up in a couple of minutes. The only linebackers uh, signed beyond this year are outside linebackers, you know, Devin Bush, one year deal, Bobby Wagner, one year deal. Uh, Vi Jones, the undrafted free agent, John Radigan, those guys are on tenders. Um, nobody saw him long term as an inside linebacker and they didn't draft one. Um, so it, I, I think they're counting on that as they move forward. What they could have done to make us breathe a little easier there is draft a linebacker or two, right? So, uh, This is called the shadow draft. And let's get into this. I'm just going to bring it up. If you're watching on the video, the live feed, uh, I am going to bring up the screen right there. And what you see on the left side there in the green is Seahawks actual picks at each spot. And then next to it, the player that I had wrote, written down when the Seahawks were on the clock before the pick was announced, what I would have done in that pick. And let's start at the top. Look, I had all the questions in the world about not just his character. I think that was being overblown. I don't think the Seahawks took Jalen Carter off of their board because of the accident. I think they took him off their board and they said some things in the press conference after day three that I think touched on this Um, because they weren't sold on his self-motivation the way he's wired, his passion for football. A lot of people said, hey, they're going to bring him in because they have the culture to surround him and they can get the most, they can coach him up. They can get the most out of him. The Seahawks sound more now than ever like they're not interested in that type of player, no matter how talented he is, that they shouldn't have to draw that out of him, that they'll coach you up on technique, but they don't want to have to teach you life lessons. They want players that are already waking up every day, trying to find ways to be great. But I went ahead and took Jalen Carter because as I'd said many times leading up to the draft and in a lot of the mocks that I did, when you took Jalen Carter at five, just based on talent alone, the rest of the draft board really fell into place in a much better way. And it feels like you're working from ahead instead of behind, right? Right. And then as I had locked in my philosophy leading up to the draft, we talked about this in the last mock I did before the draft that I was just going to keep it simple. I was going to, I was going to draft for need, but take players that I thought were rated in that range on the board, but take care of my biggest needs first. So I could let the rest of the draft fall to me. So at 20, I took miles Murphy, the edge defensive end out of Clemson. Um, I have questions about him as a prospect. Don't know anything about his personality or character uh, other than at his size and length and athletic profile. uh, You can see a player to be unlocked in there. Production didn't always show up on tape. Didn't have big sack numbers. Didn't make a lot of dynamic plays, but strong edge setter, really athletic, big long could move inside and out. I thought, Man, if you could get Jalen Carter and Miles Murphy in that first round, go to bed that night, you can wake up and just let the rest of the draft happen however you want it to happen or however the board falls to you, which allowed me to do some things on day two. So instead of Devin Witherspoon and Jackson Smith and Jigba, I end day two with Jalen Carter and Miles Murphy, who Murphy ended up going 28, eight picks later. Then on day two, I took Joe Titman, the center out of Wisconsin at 43 uh, or at 37 instead of Derek Hall. And I based this on a lot of things. First of all, he was my favorite center prospect in the draft. Really athletic, nasty, mean, got to the second level. Um, I think he might have the best career of all the centers that were drafted in this draft. Um, but also I knew the Seahawks had interest, interest in him. They sent Steve Hutchinson back to work him out the week before the draft. There was that Tony Pauline report that were even, they were even considering him in the late first round, maybe after a trade back. Um, which, by the way, we didn't see any trade backs except for the fourth round. I talked about the cash and cap thing earlier. I meant to make the point that um, for those of you who were concerned that they were strapped for cash and that they might have to trade down to lessen some of that cap blow, as uh, do uh, Michael Sean. Um, implied in his athletic piece. They didn't do that. So I take Joe Tippman at 37. He ends up going just six picks later to the Jets at 43. So I had his value just about right. And then at 52, instead of, you know, Seahawks take Zach Charbonnet, running back out of UCLA, I went. Drew Sanders was surprised at this point, thought it was great value at 52. Early in the process, he was mocked pretty routinely at the end of the first round. uh, Because I became sold on his ability to play inside linebacker. Long guy, kind of reminded me of K.J. Wright in some way, 6'4", 235. uh, Was was an edge player at Alabama, moved inside at Arkansas. So he was still kind of learning the position, but showed the ability to come up and stack and shed. But also a guy that you could put on the edge and bring as an outside rusher. Thought his versatility, his ability to drop and cover also was really exciting. And now you've added to that linebacker group, and you can look ahead a few years, and it's not a barren wasteland going into the offseason next year. Thought he was a good complimentary player. And maybe what Miles Murphy was lacking as a twitchy edge rusher, more of a defensive end, more of a five technique. Drew Sanders can give you that versatility and come up and be an edge rusher. Also kind of check two boxes at once with him. In the fourth round at 108, instead of Anthony Bradford, guard out of LSU, I went Roshan Johnson, a running back. I had routinely mocked a Seattle in about this area. He ended up going 115, so only seven picks later. A similar running back in some ways to Zach Charbonnet. Bigger dude, 230 pounds, can break some tackles, but dynamic enough, has some shiftiness, catches the ball well. I think Zach Charbonnet was the third best running back in the draft. I really like the player. I'm not mad about where they took him because I think that's going to be a dynamic combination, he and Ken Walker. But it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years, right? How Roshan Johnson's career looks His performance on the field against Zach Charbonnet. And then at 123, Seahawks went Cameron Young because they had to. Now they had to turn their attention on day three. We went to bed after the third round, really nervous, didn't we? Really worried. So they wake up on Saturday and they just start attacking the trenches on both sides of the ball. Because they had to, because they went corner wide receiver early. So they go Anthony Bradford, or they go Cameron Young. I went Darius Rush, cornerback. Unlike a lot of fans, I did see corner as, an, as a position I wanted to add to on this roster. Mike Jackson's a fine player. Trey Brown Trey Brown has shown flashes. But this was a deep corner draft. And I thought we could upgrade that spot and improve our depth at the same time. Darius Rush might have, might have had the, the best senior bowl of any corner. 6'2", 200, you know, has that long ability to, to really play a lot of press man. I love Devin Witherspoon, best corner in the draft. My favorite tape to watch this whole offseason. Think he's going to be a superstar. But in the fourth round, Darius Rush fits the Seahawks' style and type. And I think might have been good enough to start as a rookie over Jackson as well. In the fifth, I got a little, um, I took a chance. Instead of Mike Morris at 151, and I considered Morris in that spot. You can see that I didn't, we didn't make any of the same picks, but that was as close as we came. That N 154, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, I took Andrew Voorhees, the guard out of USC, who would have been a second round pick had he not torn his ACL um, at the combine. He went a lot later. And I thought, I thought this was about the range where he would go. And I thought having these two extra picks. Yeah, he probably isn't going to contribute as a rookie. Um, but his upside moving forward as a guy that can play guard, tackle in a pinch. Um, you know, you red shirt him, I thought that would have been great value. He ends up going 229, really surprised me there. And then at 154, I mentioned that, you know, I gave some thought to this player, not in taking him in my shadow draft, uh, because I had taken Joe Tippman, but I liked him in this spot because I actually even tweeted after they took Morris, hey, why don't we just stay at Michigan, take the other center? Uh, There, I went Parker Washington, uh, wide receiver out of Penn State, a guy that I've liked all through the process, a slot guy. So he would have still fit that same role as JSN. A little short, I think 5'10", kind of reminds me of Doug Baldwin in the way he's built sort of looks like a running back. Uh, Really strong player, good route runner, had some injury issues last year, was hurt through the process, so he slipped a little bit. Um, but he was still available there. And I thought, because I hadn't addressed receiver yet, I thought that would have been great value in the sixth round at one ninety-eight, they take Jarek Reed, the second, uh, safety out of New Mexico. I took one of my favorite players leading up to this draft, Moro Jomo in the sixth. I wanted to add one more player to that rotation talked about in the show yesterday. And this is what I wish they would have done. Love Kenny McIntosh as a player. I think that's going to give us a dynamic young running back room. I'm not mad about it. Um, but Ajomo was still on the clock. Even then, he didn't go till 249, as you can see. And I just thought, as a guy with one of the hottest motors in the draft, guy that could play tackle and end that I keep saying this every time I bring up his name, but one scouting report, one one opposing coach, one opposing college coach said his game film looks like training tape on how to play the run. Uh, but he had some pass rush wiggle too had a little upside there. I just thought another body. So now you're getting a little bit deeper. You're adding three bodies there instead of just the two and a guy that I really, really like. And then in the seventh round, of course, the Seahawks take Macintosh at two thirty seven. I was really shocked that Ivan Pace jr. Was still on the board and ended up not being drafted uh, going into undrafted free agency. Uh, it's a shame the Seahawks couldn't have landed him. I can't remember where he we went Cleveland. Maybe. Um, the only thing wrong with Ivan Pace jr. Is he was too short. 5'11", 230, uh, defensive player of the game in the senior bowl, incredibly productive, over 20 tackles for loss. I think he had 10-plus sacks. They used him as a blitzer a lot, Um, but also even as an undersized guy, a guy that can go sideline to sideline and just plays with his hair on fire and is a heat-seeking missile looking for players to hit. Um, Thought he would be a guy that, even if he was never a full-time every-down starter, would be a nice little compliment to Drew Sanders moving forward. So there it is. That's my shadow draft. Jalen Carter, Miles Murphy, Joe Tipman, Drew Sanders, Roshan Johnson, Darius Rush, Andrew Voorhees, Parker Washington, Moro Ajomo, Ivan Pace. What do I like better about what the Seahawks did? Even though it scared me because we, we had to wait on them checking those boxes for need, I like the character of every player they took. I like what that locker room is going to be like. I also like the fact that they got the best player at two different impact positions on the roster. Devin Witherspoon at five, the best, most dynamic corner in the draft. And I think a unique guy that's going to, it's going to uplift that defense. And Jackson Smith and a guy that I think can be a superstar in the slot and compliment DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett and that tight end group and those running backs and this could be the most dynamic offense we've seen Seattle in quite some time. So I like what they did there. I like all their picks overall. I would have felt better about the bodies we had on the defensive line, but I'll, I'll say this, both these lists make me nervous, but for different reasons. Looking at the Seahawks defensive line group that we just talked about makes me nervous because I don't know how much Young and Morris are going to be able to give you as rookies. And we need to add a couple of veterans to that, that, that group. It's just light right now. And that scares me. I would have been worried. I like the talent that I took up front, but I would have been concerned about Carter's commitment and that, that hanging over, like that question just would have been there every day. How's Jalen Carter looking? Is he working hard? How's his weight? Is he doing the? It would have just been such a microscope, I think it would have been a huge distraction. And then Miles Murphy, just not really sure where he fits or what his upside is. I mean, I think there's a there's a chance three years from now, we might look back and say Mike Morris is a better player. Just that really stereotypical kind of poster child for three, four defensive end, because he's bulking up to two ninety-five. I bet he shows up at camp at 300, six foot six. Long limbs, bull rusher, hot motor. It'll be interesting to see. Like I said, I think Joe Tipman's going to have a better career than Ola Shagan, uh, Ola Watimi. I have fallen in love with the Anthony Bradford pick. I think he's going to start at some point as a rookie over Phil Haynes, and I think I think he, he's going to be potentially a pro bowl guard and a guy that can contribute as a rookie. So I, I'm not going to say it's a wash. I actually think Bradford might be a better player long-term than Voorhees. I didn't get a safety, but I got a corner. And I think the running backs, I don't know that the drop-off from Charbonnet to Roshan Johnson is that severe. And I'll tell you this, if the Seahawks had taken Roshan Johnson in the fourth instead of Charbonnet in the second and had taken Sanders the running backs are an important crowd would be much quieter right now. So I don't know, man, as I'm looking at this, Keith said last night, he said, you never like your shadow draft better. And I get that because what the Seahawks did is a known quantity. Seen all their interviews, right? Talked to them. We've gotten to know them. I really don't know anything about how these other guys are wired. What do you like better? What do you think? love to just mention it in the comments, which one do you prefer and why did you do a shadow draft? And if you did, what were some of the picks, even if you just have one or two examples of guys that, you know, when we were on the clock at one Oh eight, for example, and there's a guy there that you were just in love with, tell me in the comments, hit subscribe, follow the page, support the page. Um, really appreciate all the support during the draft season. This has been, uh, as I said, a, just a tremendous, tremendous amount of fun. And now we move on, right? We get into more free agency. I'll certainly keep you abreast of any news and react to that. We'll start breaking down the, uh, all the position groups and the depth chart one by one. Um, and uh, getting some guests on uh, Dana and I talked about having her on sometime soon when things settled down for her and she's recovered about her experience at Kansas City going to the draft and then uh, we'll just continue getting some of my favorite podcasters and analysts on here to give us their take I've got a couple of really really fun surprises lined up for the offseason as well so uh, might take a break for the rest of this week unless there's any breaking news might just take a breath. Hope you do too. Hope you enjoyed this. Can't wait to hear your comments on the Shadow Draft. Subscribe to the page. Follow me on Twitter. I am Dan Vians. Thank you for listening and watching. Uh, listening to and watching Seahawks Forever podcast. We'll see you next time.